Would you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah? We are going to start reading in chapter 8. And some of you are going to say, what happened to chapter 7? Um, I ripped that out of my Bible, and so I didn't know it was there. Uh, no, we'll come back to it, actually. I want to fit it into the sequence differently as we go through the study. But we're going to be reading in chapter 8, and uh, we're looking at it, chapters 8, 9, and 10. So we'll read all three of those chapters. No, we won't. Just close. Actually, the, the, the segue really begins in the beginning of chapter 7 where it reads, after the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, and then he begins in chapter 1. Would you stand with me as we read this passage together? Thank you so much. Chapter 8, verse 1, it says that after they had set the doors in place, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. And so on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. And he read it aloud from daybreak till noon. That's about six hours. As he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men and women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion, and beside him on his right hand stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Maasiah, and on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Micaiah, Hashum, Hashababadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. And Ezra opened the book, and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. And Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Yeshua, and Bani, and Sherebiah, and Yamin, and Akub, Shabbatai, and Hodiah, and Masaiah, and Kilita, and Azariah, and Yozabad, and Hanan, and Peliah, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. And then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. And Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to the Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people saying, be still for, all, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. And then all the people went away to eat and to drink and to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because now they had understood the words that had been made known to them. And on the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, that is the entire leadership of the Jews, gathered around Ezra the scribe to give attention or to focus upon the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in booths, during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem, go into the hill country and bring back, back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms, and shade trees to make booths. 
as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves booths on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, in the square by the water gate, and one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built booths and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, which was when they first came into the land of Canaan, until that day the Israelites had observed but not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the feast for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. Verse 1 of chapter 9, And on the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Those of the Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. And they stood where they were and read from the book of the law of God, their God, for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord, their God. Let's pray. Father, I ask that as we reflect upon these passages that we've read, that your Holy Spirit would shine the light of your truth into the greatest depths of our hearts, Lord, that more than our intellect, more than our emotions, Lord, we would feel your truth written really on our soul, that we might resonate with you and enjoy the blessing that comes from living harmoniously with our God. We pray for your grace in this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Rather than being seated, why don't we just stay with the, with the whole sense of this chapter and stand through the entire message? Yeah, you don't listen to me, do you? Go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, they just don't make people like they used to. Anyway, but <laughs> 10 months after Nehemiah had first received the burden of the Lord, we find he comes to the end of this great project. He had spent four months praying before he ever left Persia. Then it took him another four months of travel to get to Jerusalem from Persia. And then once he arrived, another two months in building. So 10 months have transpired. And suddenly we find as the wall is completed, the gates are set in place, the doors are closed, the emphasis really shifts from the walls to the will of the people. In other words, he begins in the seventh month, it says, to bring people into a spiritual conformity with God's heart. The seventh month is significant in the Jewish life. It, it, it falls sometimes between September and October. Their seventh month is actually what they consider the beginning of the year because their calendar is built on an agrarian cycle, a farming cycle, which means that the harvests are over and they begin the preparation for next year's harvest, the, the, fall, the fall plantings, the preparing of the soil, and so forth. So it's really kind of for them when the fall comes in September or October, they are at the end of their year and that's the time when they begin their festival season. They have three great feasts that take place. The first one is known to us as Rosh Hashanah. Really, it's the New Year feast because it's the beginning of their year. In fact, September 25th, this year will be the beginning of the Jewish New Year. They call it the Feast of Trumpets because they blow trumpets to signal the beginning of that one-day feast. And then you have on, on the... Uh, 
a bit, basically 10 days later, probably the most solemn day of the year for the Jews, the Day of Atonement. We know of the Hebrew term is Yom Kippur. And on Yom Kippur, basically, the high priest goes into the temple and offers a blood offering to the Lord in atonement for the sins of the nation. It's really, again, the ultimate do-over where nationally they say, God, if we have done anything that has offended you, we ask that you would forgive us so that the blessing of the Lord could return. Because they understood what sin does is it estranges us from God. It's not that God uh, judges us when we sin, but rather sin is its own judgment because it creates a separation and estrangement from God so that we miss out on the blessing. The blessing that God yearns to give us is not able to come upon us because we've given place to something else which God would identify as sin in our life. This is the only feast of the year which is not a feast. There are seven feasts altogether. This is the one day in which they were told to fast and mourn before the Lord in repentance for their sin. And then there comes, at the end of the month, there comes the Feast of Tabernacles, this seven or eight day feast called, the fe called Sukkot in Hebrew. Basically, this is where they build booths, or more literally, they build these little lean-tos out of the branches and leaves of trees, and they live outside during the feast. So every night, they go camp out. They even do that today in Israel, and I've been told by a lot of Jewish people that that's their favorite time of year because it's like families all going on camp out. They all sleep under these lean-tos uh, in, the, in the beautiful uh, uh, fall weather. It's really, really wonderful there in September and October, and uh, they just have a celebration. They invite their friends over, and they have feasts and so forth. It's quite a, quite a festive season, but it was designed by God to remind them where they had come from. He said in Deuteronomy over and over again, don't forget that you were once slaves in the land of Egypt. And it's once a year where they look back and say, you know, we used to be people who lived out under the stars. We lived in tents. We lived in the wilderness. And God brought us into this fruitful land and allowed us to become a mighty nation with all the blessings and the rewards that we experience. And he says, you need to go back to that because you forgot that. You forgot where you came from. It's, it's not unlike what happens with us as Christians sometimes. We can walk with Christ for so many years, we forget that we used to be sinners now that we've become sinlessly perfect, right? Now that you stop sinning, right? That's you, right? <laughs> but we do kind of look at askance sometimes. We look at people without Christ and we look at the choices and the lifestyle they lived and we think, why would somebody do that? And we forget that used to be you and me. We were those people. We did the same thing. And if it were not for the enlightenment, the spiritual illumination that comes through knowing Jesus Christ, we would still be there because we would know no different. That basically people without Christ live their life in a feverish pursuit of one distraction after another so they don't really have to take stock of where their life is at. They don't want to really think about it at all. And so I think that's why we do our funerals the way we do it in our culture. We, we so sterilize, sanitize, and decorate the body that we say things like, oh, isn't he resting peacefully? And I feel like sometimes the pastor leaning over and saying, he's not resting, he's dead. You know, his spirit left a long time ago. We're just looking at the carcass. But that's not appropriate, so I don't do it. But nonetheless, it's this kind of crazy idea. We try to sanitize death as if it's something that's not connected to us. And I hate to tell you this, it's right around the corner. And for some of us, we're getting closer to that corner every moment as we're breathing. 
And so he says, we, we forget these realities, we forget these dynamics, that this is the truth about human existence, that we were sinners, and unless we meet Christ, we'll live without that peace, without that joy, and without that power in our life. And so these were things that God had instituted. So we find that at this point, there's another shift that takes place. Prior to this, we have Nehemiah, the architect, who is rebuilding the walls. Now there's a different kind of architect coming on the scene. Ezra, the priest or the teacher. He's a priest, but his primary job is to teach the scriptures. And he is working in architecture of building the will and the heart of the people to seek the God of Israel. And the tool that he uses is not the trowel or the hammer, but rather his tool is the word of God. And the reason is because of what Paul said in Romans 10, 17, when he says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In other words, for me to grow in my faith relationship with God, I need to know what the Bible says. Those things can't be separated because when I read the scriptures, it causes me to put my faith in God, not my faith in me or someone else. So what Ezra does is he builds the faith of the people by teaching them the Word of God. So here's the picture that we have laid out by Nehemiah in this particular situation. We find that Ezra comes out of the temple surrounded by 13 priests. Now you ask the question, why 13 priests? Simple, I have no idea. Uh, maybe there's some spiritual symbolism that sometimes I think people get carried away with trying to find symbolism and things that even if you find it doesn't make much difference. But nonetheless, they're just, we're just told that these three, 13 guys that come out with him, that may have been just the guys that were in the room. He climbs up on an elevated platform made of wood that had been built for this occasion so that he could look down and speak out to the congregation, this large gathered crowd that has come, and he literally unties or loosens the cord and opens a scripture. You know, in Matthew 16, Matthew 18, Jesus talks about what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's literally a rabbinical term for teaching the scriptures because the scriptures was in a scroll and you would literally untie the cord so that you could, or loosen the cord so that you could open the scriptures. You'd roll it back up and tie it up when you were done. And so literally, here's Ezra, comes out, he unties the scroll and he opens it up and he begins to read from the scriptures. Now what's interesting is that there are not only 13 priests that are standing with him up on this platform, but there are 13 Levites. Levites were not necessarily priests. By this time, the Levites had become more of the rabbinical leadership, the teachers of the scriptures. And we're told they're mingling out amongst the crowd. And we read, they instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear, giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Now, why was this necessary? Well, it may surprise you, but the scrolls that, that Ezra is reading right now, written by Moses, were now a thousand years old. The scriptures were already a thousand years old, and he's reading it to them in a dialect that was no longer used. Like any language over a thousand years, you're going to find that you're not going to recognize, you wouldn't recognize English from the time of Chaucer. 
Or as my friend Stanley Volk used to say when we were arguing about which translation was best, he used the NIV like I do, but we had people who were arguing that you have to use the King James, it's the only anointed translation. And I loved in his, his British accent, he said it so wonderfully, he said, my goodness gracious, we don't even talk like that anymore. So the reality is that language changes, and so there was that need. But even more so, by this time we know that most Jews no longer spoke Hebrew. They'd spent the last 70 to 150 years in places like Persia and Babylon. They spoke uh, Aramaic, which became the language that was common in Jesus' day as well. So many of them didn't even know what the Hebrew meant when it was being read to them. So these priests are literally operating as translators or interpreters more accurately. They're taking what he is saying and they're explaining it to the people so that they would understand what's being said. And this becomes a real critical point because the whole purpose of Scripture is to be understood. It's not to be some kind of magical mystery uh, writing that you have to have some exalted person to interpret. And that may seem strange to us, but that still exists in a lot of cultures in the world today. That if you go into the synagogue today, it will be read, the text will be read in Hebrew. And if you don't understand Hebrew, then you're going to not know what's being said. But we find that's true of the mosque in Islam as well. That they even speak another ancient version of Arabic that only the greatest scholars can read and understand and then have to be interpreted so people can know what's being said. Well, it wasn't that long ago. It was in 1960 when the Catholic Church finally gave up the, the Latin liturgy. Because if you, those of you who come from Roman Catholic backgrounds and are as old as dirt like I am, you remember what that was like. You'd sit there and the priest would get up there and he'd intone all this stuff in Latin. You didn't have any idea what he was saying. It might have been Greek, but it was Latin actually. So you just didn't understand a thing that was being said. And then they transitioned into speaking in the common language in the local residence. And that's been the practice except for uh, just up here in the hills. But generally speaking... It became understandable. And believe it or not, that had a powerful and dramatic impact upon many people in the Roman church. For the first time in their life, they heard the scriptures being read and they understood the word of God. And there started a whole born-again movement in the Roman church, a spirit-filled movement in the Roman church, just simply because the scriptures were now opened up. But we always need to keep in mind that there's nothing spiritual about talking about the Bible in ways that people can't understand. There's nothing spiritual in that. What, what we are supposed to be doing is to bring the Word of God to people on a level that they can understand and apply directly to their own life. But there was another reason why this was necessary in this context. You see, they had not heard the reading of the Scriptures for centuries. We don't know for sure. We know that Josiah, who was the last godly king of Judah, who had died about 200 years earlier had discovered a copy of the Mosaic Law and had it read to him. And then for the first time in his life, he heard the Scriptures. So up to as much as 300 years from the time of Solomon till Josiah, nobody had heard the reading of the Scriptures in public that people might understand. Keep in mind, there's no libraries, there's no books, there's no place you can hear it except to have it read to you in that context. There was no synagogue existent at that point. And so as a result, they were literally illiterate when it came to the Bible. And many of them may have been actually illiterate. Because something that most people don't understand, 
the move towards international literacy, the ability for people to read in their own language, came as a consequence of translating the Bible into the language of the common people. Do you understand that that was the real impetus? So people could read the Bible. Because despots recognized for centuries that there's power in controlling the written word. If you're the only one who can read it and interpret it, then you have power and control over other people. So the idea of putting the word of God in the hands of common people is what really lay behind the great literacy movement that we are so familiar today and are sadly moving away from today. But nonetheless, this was a critical need. So what happened? If they weren't having the scriptures read, what did they do? They went to the temple. And they went to the temple and they performed rituals for which they had little understanding and really little grasp. But the temple became really kind of this religio-cultural center, basically simply for ritual observance. And it became all about the magic of the ritual and what it would accomplish. And what most people don't understand was this was never God's intention. That what God wanted was informed worshipers. In fact, most people are surprised to find out that God never commanded the Jews to build a temple. Remember when David said, I want to build a temple? And God said, when have I ever needed a temple? I don't dwell in buildings made by men's hands. He never had commanded that. But what did He command? He commanded that they know the scriptures. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses says this to the Israel, the Lord my God gave these laws to me and commanded me to pass them on to you. If you obey them carefully, you will display your wisdom and intelligence to the surrounding nations. When they hear about these laws, they will explain what other nation is as wise and prudent as this. And he goes on to say, they'll say, what other nation has a God who is so good to give them such great laws and is so near to them that he hears their prayers? So that God's intention was that the thing that was going to be the distinctive of Israel was the fact that they had his word and they submitted themselves to it. It had nothing to do with the temple. And yet over time, they replaced one with the other. You know what it reminds me of? When I was a, a little kid, I was five years old, I had a buddy in, in, in kindergarten who invited me to go to Sunday school with him. And so I'd never been, so he took me with me, and I took him with me, took me with him, yeah. And we had a great time. And so it was only a few blocks from my house, so I walked every Sunday. I'd put on my little suit, and I'd walk down there as I was going out the door. My dad would hand me a dollar bill. Uh, he stayed in his easy chair, his recliner, but He gave me a dollar bill to put in the offering because he wanted people to see one of the local businessmen contributing to the local church and wasn't that sweet. His little boy's putting a dollar in there. Let me tell you, in those days, a dollar actually bought something. The temptation was often strong. But nonetheless, (laughs) so, I mean, this was a ritual. Every Sunday morning, I get up, (laughs) he hands me a dollar out the door to church. I drop it in the offering. But I don't, I'm kind of a blank slate. I know nothing about Christianity or anything. I really had no, no background at all. And I remember one day as a kid, I'm running through the sanctuary of the church. I'm laughing and playing and joking around and having a good time. And this girl, one of my classmates, stops me and says, what are you doing? And I said, what do you mean? She says, you're laughing and running in the sanctuary. And I said, yeah. I thought, wow, she's got powerful perceptions. But yeah, that's what I'm doing. She says, I said, what's the problem? He says, this is a house of God. And this was a new concept to me. 
Because, I mean, I looked around and I didn't see him. I didn't feel anything. But suddenly I understand that when you walk into this room, something's different about this space. Kind of like the one we're in right now. <laughs> you see, that's a, that's a religious spirit that really kind of attaches itself and we begin to lose sight of why something is what it is. When you, when you look at the 90-odd thousand square feet that makes up this complex that we're in, why are we in a complex like this? Why did we take a perfectly good grocery store and turn it into a worship center? Why did we do that? We didn't do it because there was something sacred about Albertsons. You know, we didn't do it because there was something that goes back centuries that made this ground sick. We did it because it was functionally practical. It's just, all, it's just functional. You know, when we started, we were in little Bible studies in people's homes. There was nothing sacred about those homes. There was nothing really especially sacred about any of the people in that room. It was just that we needed some place to be able to get together. And then you get to a point where that's not enough room, so you rent a school, and that doesn't work after a while. And then you buy an old church, and that doesn't work after a while, and then you buy this thing. It's all very practical, and the same idea with the temple. God intended it to be a very straightforward and simple a place for people to come and meet with God, pray to God, and respond to God and all that He was doing. But the center of their faith was always intended to be the Word of God. That's why God allowed the temple to be destroyed twice. That's why He allowed it to be destroyed by the Babylonians. And it's interesting, what's left after the temple is destroyed, the city is destroyed, the people are carried into the captivity of Babylon, what is left to them of their faith? Only one thing the Scriptures. The Word of God was the only thing left to them. What do you think God was trying to say to them? Go back to where I called you to be in the beginning. Go back to having your foundation in your faith in what I have declared through my Word. It's human nature to lose sight of that, but it's critically important that we don't. But there's certain things I think we can derive from a lot of this stuff. Because when we look at the apostasy, and apostasy is a word that means uh, a departure from the faith. When we look at this departure from God that brought the judgment that the Jews suffered, we sit there and realize that what happens is that biblical illiteracy tends to lead us into apostasy. It leads us to some place other than where God wants to be because we begin to develop a very different view of reality, a different view of the world. In fact, sadly, that is probably the biggest challenge that we face in the church today. We think about so many social and moral challenges. They're great and they're real, but the reason that that social and moral challenge is there is because people have become ignorant of what Scripture teaches or have chosen to disregard what Scripture teaches about those activities and those behaviors. In fact, today, most Christians are technically literate. Most of you have a, uh, at least a functional level of literacy. You can read stuff, unless it's instruction how to put together a kid's toy, but you can read stuff and understand it. But we are terribly biblically illiterate in the church today. In fact, the Barna Research Group did a study, a survey of this uh, uh, probably five or six years ago now, and they said that among born-again Christians... Less than one out of every five, the actual number is 19%, had a biblical outlook on life. 
What do we mean by that? It's what we call a worldview. When they deal with situations in life, how do they approach it? What's the decision-making process that they use? And they said when they went through the survey, they had six key questions they asked them. They asked them, for example, moral truth. Is there absolute moral truth in the universe? I mean, are there some things that are always true under every circumstance in every culture around the world? And amazing, uh, most Christians said, no. No, there's an absolute moral truth. They found, secondly, that when they asked him, is the biblical accurate in all of its principles and its teaching, most Christians said, no, it's not. You can't depend upon the Bible. They asked him, is Satan real? Most of them said, no, we don't believe in any such thing. They asked him if Jesus is the only way to heaven. No, he's just one of many ways to heaven. Is Jesus led a sinless life? Oh, no, he was a man just like the rest of us. And I think most amazingly, the sixth question is, God, is God the all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe who still rules today? And the answer was, no, he's not. In other words, we are the masters of our own fate. We're the captain of our own ship. Now, we may sit there and say, what difference does this make? Well, it makes huge difference because worldview serves as a person's decision-making filter. In other words, when you face situations and that require choices, your view of reality is going to determine what kind of a choice you make. Let me illustrate. Uh, one time I was going to have breakfast in a, in a restaurant, meet with somebody for a meeting, and I, and I went in, sat down, ordered my food, ate my food, had my meeting, got my bill, got up to walk out, and as I handed the cashier a $10 bill to cover my breakfast, she gave me change. And I just took the change and I walked out to my car. And as I opened the door and I was going to put the money in my wallet, I looked down and saw that she had given me two $20 bills. I gave her a 10, my change was 220. Now, I thought either I'm destined for a life of business or, you know, I mean, what's the first response that comes into your sinful mind? I'm thinking, score! <laughs> and then I had this second thought that came from a higher place. You know, know for sure, Numbers 3223 says, right? Know for sure that your sins will find you out. And right away, I see her saying, you know, there's no way that if I keep this, that this can turn out good. Because maybe I'll walk out with $40 that I didn't have before, but God will probably bring something in my life that will cost me $400. He'll make me pay, and he'll make me pay long and hard. So I walked back in, and I said, uh, you made a mistake when you gave me change. And she'd been, get really defensive, and I said, no, 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 no. You gave me too much money. And she was so relieved because she said, I was going to have to make up the difference on the till if you didn't bring that back. And so I thought, I can imagine she's going to remember my face. <laughs> That's the guy who took advantage of me. And there's all sorts of ramifications. But the whole point is that there are some things you look at in life and you need to recognize there's no way it can turn out right because God says it won't turn out right. A friend of mine was in a hotel in, 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 a, in a foreign country, and he gets a call in the middle of the night from a prostitute soliciting him to come up to his room. Uh, you know, in many countries, they actually work with the hotels. And uh, he declined her offer, and she said, why? And he said, well, two reasons. One is that I uh, love my wife and I fear God. And then he said, wait a minute, wait a minute, let me restate that. 
I fear my wife and I love God. <laughs> but he was telling the story, he says, I just knew there's no way that this could turn out good. You can just look at it and say, there's no way that you can do something that God specifically and concisely says, thou shalt not, and expect something good to come out of it. I'm convinced that's why my wife and I have been married for 45 years. Because there's many times you go through marriage, those of you who are married know, we can be honest, right? We can talk among ourselves. That's a real, there's many times you sit saying, this is getting too hard, this is no longer fun. And you realize, so what's the alternative? God says, I hate divorce. So what is the alternative? You submit yourself to God and you let Him lead you to a place where that relationship can be a blessing and not a burden. Those are choices you make based upon your view of reality. If you believe that you can lie, cheat, and steal and get away with it and come out ahead like some presidential candidates, you're going to find that you're going to find that your life is a train wreck. And you're not going to be happy with the results. And so God says, follow my word. Let me be the, the thing that makes the decisions for you. Because in the end of the day, we make our choices, but then our choices make us. We make our choices, but our choices will end up making us. And we'll be controlled and determined and defined by those choices that we have made. So... Saying all this, how did Nehemiah address the problem of the biblical illiteracy that was in front of him? Well, he did two things. First of all, he preached a series of really great sermons. And the way he did that, most of all, is he prepared himself. Chuck Swindoll once said, there are two factors to make for great sermons. One is a prepared preacher. The second one is a prepared people. Let's talk about how Nehemiah prepared himself. Not in the sense of sitting down and writing out a long text, but rather he, first of all, preached the only thing that's worth preaching, and that's the Scriptures. He didn't give his opinions, his point of view. He didn't give social commentary. He didn't give political commentary. He, he didn't do any of that kind of stuff. He didn't talk about what bad people they were or anything else. He just simply preached the simplest of all pre sermons. It says, Ezra the priest brought out the book of the law and he read it. That's what he did. He just informed them. He read it to them so they could hear it. But what is he doing? He's starting out with a basis of all authority is the Word of God. And then he secondly, he elevates the authority of God's Word by going up on an elevated platform. Now that may seem kind of chunky to you for me to use that kind of comparison, but it is saying something. Him going up on a platform so that he can be seen and heard is a statement of the importance of what he is about to do. And in response, what did the people do? They stood up and began to worship God. Now, you may not think much of the fact that you're here this morning. I just want you to let you know, first of all, I am incredibly grateful that you are because I know you have choices. I know that the sun is shining. I know some of you are here because you have no air conditioning. But besides that, there's still there's, there's choices you have to make. There's places you can go, things that you can do. It's a beautiful summer and it'll soon be ruined by short days and cold weather. So I get that whole idea. And I realize that's a choice. But what you need to understand not just, you're not doing this obviously to make me happy, but God finds pleasure in you being here. Why? Because what it says is you made experiencing God in the community of Christian fellowship, sitting under the exposition and the teaching of God's word is important enough for you 
that you're willing to give valuable time. The most precious commodity you possess is your time, and you were willing to invest it in this time in the hopes that God would speak something into your life that would be life-changing. That you might know His Word and be able to make those critical life choices based upon His revelation of what is true and not just simply based upon your efforts blindly groping around hoping that you hit the right levers to make life work the way it's supposed to work. The third thing that he did was when he had that opportunity, he declared the Scriptures unapologetically. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon. From daybreak, it was not about them finding out who Ezra was. Ezra wasn't climbing up in his pulpit and saying, now here's my chance. I've been in the shadows of this Nehemiah guy ever since he showed up 10 minutes ago. Finally, I'm going to get my moment in the sun and they can find out what, an, what a fine expositor of Scripture I am. No, it's not about his ego trip. What he's there is to declare what God says loudly and unapologetically. We live in an era where many Christians have been kowtowed, have been intimidated into being embarrassed to quote Scripture or to tell people what the Bible says. And we miss these huge opportunities all the time because what I have found from my own experience is when people start talking about something, and usually, you know, usually on airplanes and airports, I'll be sitting next to somebody and they'll start giving me their version of reality. And I, this is my favorite thing. I'd say, well, you know what the Bible says? And that, that immediately I have total interest. <laughs> and I'll share them something the Scripture says. Sometimes what I share with them has no relationship to anything they said, but it works anyway. <laughs> All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You, know, you just share something. And I've, it's amazing to me because people at that moment respond almost always positively. Even the guys who say, well, I don't believe that Bible crap. You know, I said, you know, the Bible actually says that you would say that. It says right here, <laughs> in the last days there will be mockers. You know, and they, well, I don't, you know, you, it, it's endless where you can go. But what I've discovered is at the end of the day, I've had those people always say, well, well, thanks for telling me that. Because there's something spiritually compelling about Scripture. There's something spiritually compelling. It isn't just ink on paper. It's not just words on pages. The Holy Spirit of God breathed these into the place where they're in front of us. And when you read them and speak them, He breathes that truth into the hearts of other people. There is a dynamic of transformation that takes place just because people hear the Word of God in a way that they can understand it. And that's the last thing I want to say about the prepared preacher. The ultimate measure is, does he clarify Scripture or confuse it? It says, Ezra opened the book, making it clear, giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. At the end of the day, if you walk out of here and you don't have any idea what I've said, then I haven't accomplished my task. I mean, I don't expect you to comprehend everything and to know everything and remember everything, but the point is that somehow, unless that has some kind of understanding, something that comes into you and begins to affect your view of reality in a more biblical and God-like sense, then I haven't been faithful to the task that's in front of me. So that it's not about just simply wowing people and having them say, wow, that was really great. I'll be honest, I, I have listened to some teachers, some communicators, some biblical speakers 
who, I mean, I've sat there in complete awe and wonder of their ability to communicate or to at least speak. But when you get done, if you were to come up to me and say, so what did you take away from that? And usually what I could say is, he's a lot better at it than I am. But I wouldn't say, I don't feel like, but what spiritually did I take away? Did God speak into your life? And I've had to sadly say, well, no. I was intimidated because he was so much better than me. I was marveling at his skills and his abilities. But at the end of the day, there was nothing that compelling that said in a prophetic way that God has just spoken into my life. And there's something I need to do in response to what I've just heard. To me, that is the measure of success. If listening to the Word of God and reading the Bible doesn't compel us to respond to God, then we're wasting our time because that's the whole point. And that's why I say the second part of a great sermon isn't just the prepared preacher, it's also the prepared people. And we find these people are prepared when we read, for example, the assembly which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand, all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Now, we hear about the book of the law, and I've heard many people saying, boy, the book of Leviticus, how do you even read that thing? That's so stinking boring. Is it possible you don't get it? You don't understand it? That's fair. But you see, these people sat there with rapt attention. They didn't sat there. They stood there for six hours without moving. You know what? We'll find out. They did it the second day also. In fact, we find out later on, they do it every day for an entire week. They sit there and listen to the same book being read over and over again, standing there, listening to every word, hanging on the interpretation that's being given to them by the Levites because they just desperately want to know this. What creates that kind of attentiveness? Well, let me illustrate it this way. I spend a lot of time in airplanes. Uh, I'm I'm not a fan of airplanes. To me, it's like riding a bus anymore, but... One of the things I find is that I've heard that little speech at the beginning of the flight, you know, about your seatbelts and the lights down the aisle and the emergency exit and in case of emergency, we encourage you to read that little, you know, card in there that tells you what to do in case of emergency and so forth. And I know I'm probably the only one that does this, but I totally ignore it. To flight attendants here, I apologize profusely. I'm sorry, but I just ignore it. I'm I'm reading my book and I'm not paying any attention because I've heard it so many times it just kind of goes in my one ear and out the other, right? Am I alone? Is there no other wicked people in the room? (laughs) Am I the only? So, except I remember my wife and I were flying down to Burbank and as we're flying, uh, the pilot comes on and says, "Um, we don't have our air brakes aren't working. And so we're diverting to LAX because they have a long enough runway so that we can run it out. And so as we come in, the plane lands, and we're, you know, moving at a good clip, you know, it's pretty, and I thought, I wonder how long this runway is. And all of a sudden, there are fire trucks on both sides of us running along the side with their lights going, and I'm going, oh, stink. But let me tell you something. The moment he said we, our air brakes aren't working, I found that little card and started reading it. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking for that little starred clause at the body and says, how do I get out of this situation? <laughs> I mean, when we realize that there's something important being said, we listen very closely. Why does your wife, gentlemen, get mad at you when you're not listening to her? It's because you're telling her what you're saying isn't important to me. 
So when we think something's important, we listen very closely. And that's why people listen to the Bible. You don't have to tell somebody to read the Bible if they believe that the Bible has the answer to the most critical situations they're going to deal with in their life. You don't need to tell somebody to listen to the teaching of Scripture if they believe that doing so is critically important to their success, to their shalom, to the peace of God in their life. They will automatically give your attention. And not only that, you'll become beyond attentive, you'll become responsive. It says they, they found written in the law. Suddenly they hear the law and they found in the law something that they hadn't seen before. They found which the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites were to live in booths or these uh, lean-tos of branches during the great feast of the seventh month. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves booths. They didn't just hear it by paying attention to it, they responded to it and put it into action in their life. That is really the objective. The objective is that we might live out our faith. And as a preacher, let me tell you what, what is really uh, ground zero for us. That if you hear it and you like it and all that core stuff and you issue compliments and the so forth, you know, my ego loves that just like anybody else's does. But in the end of the day, all that matters is, does it become operative in your life? Do you hear it and then act upon it? Because if you don't, then you'll never reap the benefit of having responded. And I know that before long, you won't have shalom, you won't have joy, you won't have power in your Christian life. Now, why in the world would someone not listen to the Word? Well, first and foremost, when you listen to Scripture, it has four effects upon your life. The first fact, effect is grief. In fact, we read here, the Levites said to them all, do not mourn or weep, for all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. And they said, don't do this. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve. But you know what we find in scriptures? Every time somebody has the word of God open to them and they see things, it almost always creates a sorrow in their life because they see a difference between what God wants and what they've been doing. Josiah brings out the word of the law, the word of God. He reads it and he realizes, it says he fasts and mourns and goes into prayer seeking God's grace. These people have the same experience. As they're sitting listening to it, they start off by celebrating because, oh, we're going to hear the word of God. And as they listen to it being read, they realize, oh, stink, we're in trouble. We've broken all of these laws. And that's why the priests come in, come in and say, wait a minute, you're missing it. Because reality is, the bad news always needs to precede the good news. That's what preaching the gospel is about. The bad news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is this, you're a sinner, and because of that, you're going to hell. You're a sinner, and no matter how many good things and right things and blessed things and kind things and generous things you've done, without Jesus, you're going to hell. Now, let me give you the good news. Ask Jesus into your heart, and all of your sins will be forgiven, and God will reward you for all the good you've done. That's good news. But you see, the good news doesn't matter until we've had to confront the bad news about ourselves that I'm a sinner. But I'm now the good news that I'm a sinner saved by grace. And when we hear that, we go from grief to celebration. We realize that the Word of God has not come here to condemn and to kill and to, to destroy. It has come to heal and to save and to make my life whole and alive again. That God is not giving me commands because He wants to tear me down. He's giving me commands because He wants to build me up. 
And it's the same way if, if, if your yard is overgrown and somebody shows up and says, we've come here to clean up your yard, you don't walk out and say, stop, stop, those are my weeds, don't touch them. That's my clutter, that's my junk, what are you doing? Well, maybe in your case you do that, but <laughs> I've watched hoarders, I see how that works. But you know, what do we do? We just go, I can't believe it. You've come and cleaned this up, I, I'm so thankful. And the same thing is true when somebody comes to your door and says, we have a city ordinance here and this yard has to be cleaned up or else we're going to condemn the property. And you're going, oh no, that's the worst news. And somebody else steps up, but we have good news today. We have a special. We're cleaning your yard free. You go, thank you. And that's how the Word of God works in our life, friends. It breeds us, may create sorrow or grief in the beginning. The second thing it brings us to is a celebration. And that's because he says, for the joy of the Lord is your strength and he says, the Levites calmed all the people saying, be still, literally, shalom, be at peace. And then all the people went away to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. There's a really a trinity of experience here. Peace with God leads to joy and joy leads to power. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your empowerment. Many times what we try to do is have the power of God, we don't have peace with God. Or we try to have the joy of the Lord, but we don't have peace with God. And we try to have the, the power and the joy without going through peace. It all starts with peace. Because when I realize that God has forgiven my past and God has promised to bless my future, then there's a settledness that comes into my life. And without even trying to be joyful, there is a joyfulness that just naturally rises up in us because we have been cleansed and set free and healed. And as we walk in that joy, your life just inherently begins to express a power from God. Now, this is an interesting barometer. This is that canary in the mind that gives you signals. When there is no power in my life or there's no more joy in my life, I need to ask, what took my peace away? Where did my peace go? And that's how you fix it. You don't fix the joy problem by pretending you have joy. Too many times as Christians, I think we feel like we just have to put on the mask, walk in here and say, the joy of the Lord. <laughs> I'm so happy. Praise God. Isn't God good? I believe God. For... And we get in this kind of whole idea that we need to conjure up a little positive mental attitude here. But the first negative thing that will happen to you will rob all that joy out of your heart. All you got to do is get stopped for speeding out of the parking lot and your joy is gone. But when you have peace with God, you pull out, you get ticketed, and you look at the office and say, you know, I don't understand why God allowed this to happen, but I know this. My God means this for good. And he somehow he's going to bring something wonderful about it. I mean, that's the simple reality that I begin to realize God is in control. I can't tell you how many times I've been left in airports where people forgot to pick me up, and that was just my wife. You know what I mean? I can't... It goes back to my whole childhood was like that. They take me to school and move. And it was just, you know... But you've kind of, I found over and over again. I remember one time I flew into India. I mean, we're talking about, I've been flying for 36 hours. I land in India, and I'm sitting in the airport in Kochi, and I'm sitting in the airport in Kochi, and I'm sitting in the airport in Kochi. Nobody else is picking up bags. Everybody's left, and it's just me. And I think, somebody forgot me. And sure enough, they did. And I sat there and said, okay, God, you're, you're the God of heaven. So I went over and I got a hotel room, went in there and waited until 6 o'clock in the morning. I called the States, the Dallas office, and I said, um, hate to wake you up, David. It's early in the morning for you guys, but uh, 
Nobody picked me up. <laughs> Some little snafu. I don't know. But nonetheless, what was that all about? I had, I had an entire day to myself, not only to recover from my travels, but just to spend fasting and praying and seeking the face of God in preparation for what turned out to be the next 26 Bible studies I was going to teach over the next 12 days. I mean, it was, it was this amazing thing that God says, no, before you do this, this is what I planned. But I've had this peace in my heart through the whole thing, you know. Uh, my wife asked me, how can you get a plane fly halfway across the world and not know who's going to pick you up? I said, because even if I did, that's no guarantee they will. Too many times it hasn't happened, but the reality is God doesn't leave me in the middle of nowhere for no reason. And I could go on and on and on and on. All I can tell you is that you don't want to fly with me. Um, that's if, unless you're concerned. But the peace of God is the anchor to the whole thing, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If I have peace of God anchoring my soul, joy will come naturally. And with that joy will come power in your life naturally. It'll be just the natural outflow. You don't have to conjure up the joy. You don't have to conjure up the, the power. It'll come because you're at peace with God. That's why we celebrate. And that's why the third thing is that when you, we often think this is backwards. We, you know, I can't celebrate until I've confessed. Really, when you start having peace with God, you start having the courage to confront issues in your life that need changing. I've reflected on this for a long time. Why is it not until chapter 9 that they start confessing? And boy, do they confess. And listen to the nature of their confession. They realize that all this time they thought life was about them. And he's telling them, no, your life is not about you. Your life is about God. We worship that evil trinity, don't we? The me, myself, and I. And we live our lives as if we are the ground zero for everything that takes place in the universe when God says, no, actually, I am. And that your joy comes when you begin to live within that dynamic. And that's why their confession starts with them talking about everything that God is. In verse 6, they said of chapter 9, you alone are the Lord. Verse 7, you chose us. Verse 9, you heard our cries. Verse 10, you sent miraculous signs and wonders. Verse 12, you led us. Verse 13, you spoke to us. Verse 15, in our hunger, you gave us bread. Verse 19, you did not abandon us. Verse 20, you gave your good spirit to instruct us. Verse 30, you were patient with us. In your great mercy, you did not put an end to us or abandon us, for you are a gracious and a merciful God. In verse 33, it says, in all that has happened to us, you have been just. You have acted faithfully. So why did everything go so badly? Why did they end up where they were? That's when they said, while we did wrong. We are responsible for the grief and the heartache and the misery and the unhappiness and the disappointment that's coming to our life. Why? We did not follow your law. We did not pay attention to your commands. We did not serve you or turn from our evil ways. And they said, as a consequence, verse 36, we are slaves today because of our sins. We are in great distress. We created this dynamic. So grief relieved leads to celebration. Celebration leads to confession because we feel safe to be honest with God. And, and confession led to what? Commitment. In verse 38 of chapter 9, in view of all this, we are making a binding agreement and putting it into writing. And they began specifically saying, God, we promise to do the following things that we have neglected to do in the past. Nehemiah understood that the people needed to be grounded in the scriptures, to know what the word of God says 
in order to live their lives effectively, successfully blessed. But there's two things that are necessary if that's going to happen in your life and my life as well. You see, the first one is you have to believe that the Bible was divinely delivered. And that may seem obvious to some of you, but we're living in an age increasingly where more and more Christians are saying, well, you know, it's this book that was cobbled together over centuries. But when Ezra is talking to them about the scriptures, he says in chapter 9, verse 13, you came down from Mount Sinai, you spoke to them from heaven. This word wasn't just delivered by some old guy up in a mountain with too much time in his hands. You came down from heaven and you delivered that truth into us. It came as divine revelation. In verse 30, he says, by your spirit, you admonished them through your prophets. You sent prophetic voices into our life to tell us your heart and what you desired. And that's what the scripture says about itself. Paul writing to Timothy said in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture, he says, is God-breathed. It's interesting, though, the, the, in the passive form, literally what that communicates is it flows from God to you. You passively receive what God has given. It's a way of literally saying, this was God even now speaking to you from his holy scriptures. Peter even warned in his letter in, first, in, in 2 Peter 1, he said, the scripture never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Yes, there's 44 different authors to the 66 different books. Yes, they come from all sorts of different backgrounds. But at the end of the day, it's the same Spirit using human minds and abilities and capacities to express God's heart in every form and fashion that is relatable to human beings. Why does God choose so many various uh, authors and so forth? Because there are so many different kinds of people who need to hear God in their own way. And God diversified His truth in such a way that everybody could hear it in the same way. But so you have to, first of all, believe that God is the one who gave us this word, but secondly, that it has absolute authority, therefore. Because it's God's word, it has absolute authority over my life. The scripture is not, as some are saying today more and more, that this archaic, antiquated commentary from an ancient and now irrelevant culture from a far-removed time in history. Therefore, we need to reinterpret it within the context of our own modern sinfulness, which somehow comes out that our sinfulness is no longer sin because we don't want it to be. It's interesting that when the King James translates that, there is no private interpretation. The, the Greek word is idios. It's, a, it's where we get our, our word idea. It doesn't come from any idea of your own mind, but it's also where you get the word idiot. Um, making decisions contrary to what God says is idiotic. It's foolish. Or as I like to put it, sin makes you stupid. And you never know how stupid is until stupid does. Peter put it this way. He said that some who are untaught or unstable distort the Scriptures. The word distort there literally means a twist, uh, uh, to torture the idea of you put a guy in a rack and you pull his bones out of joint. That We torture it, we pervert it, we make it say something that fits our, our own thinking. 
This happens more than you can ever imagine. Today, when we're trying to deal with the great moral issues, we've, we hear people saying, well, what that means is this. It doesn't mean that. And they, they start giving these interpretations that historically the church has never heard or seen before. But he goes on to warn. The New, New Living Translation puts it this way. Uh, they, they pervert the scriptures, distort them to mean something quite different from what was meant. And the result is disaster. The result is disaster. If you believe that, you'll read it and you'll take it seriously. I mean, you really will. You'll read what it says and you'll say, you know what? For me to ignore this instruction is never going to turn out well. But if I submit to it, God says, I'll bring my blessing upon your life. So that there's so many things that we are commanded to do that from a human perspective don't make any sense. Love your enemies. Forgive those who sin against you. Be kind to those who say mean, despiteful things to you. Give out of your poverty that somebody else's burden might be blessed, much less giving out of our generosity, but giving even out of our poverty, that these kind of responses don't make any sense. I remember when I told my dad that I was tithing, he was just mortified because he knew I hardly made any money. And he says, how can you afford to give that much money away? And I said, well, how can I afford not to? <laughs> I mean, God makes my 90% go much further than the 100% ever would have gone. I can't afford to. I'd be disastrous financially. It took him decades before he finally said, I guess it works. But you understand that there's so many things that God instructs us in his word that from a human perspective, void of God, makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. But when we encounter the God of the Bible, we encounter that God of truth, we begin to discover things that are true because God said they are. They conform to a reality that's beyond the human mind to grasp or know, but is revealed to us in His Word. And so why do I, after 45 years, wake up every morning and read this book for my own edification? And why do I find myself fascinated more today than I was yesterday and than I was 45 years ago? Because I know it's the very words of life that God speaks to me through this book and He guides me through this book and His Spirit makes the Christian life alive through this book. You're never going to have to tell me you, read, you need to read your Bible. What you're going to have to tell me is, is how, isn't it about time you put that down? and do something constructive. There's nothing more constructive than reading this book. It'll change your life. We had a saying when I was first saved. Uh, this book will keep you from sin. Sin will keep you from this book. The choice is yours. Father God, I pray that you'd help us to hear your word. Hear its, its power. Its power to, to affect change in our life, to change and alter our very view of the world that we live in so that we can begin to engage life in the most effective and successful way as opposed to just groping in the blindness trying to figure if we can find the right button or lever to open the mystery door where good things come out. God, you said in your word that all good things come from your hand. You are the author of truth in its absolute form and not in the relative opinion of our culture. God, I pray as we face an increasingly adversarial culture that disregards your truth, 
that we would stand firm upon your truth and not move to the left or to the right, but that our lives might be founded upon it. We ask in Jesus' holy name, amen.